you are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. I'd like to welcome the man, the legend that is, Mr. David Connolly. <coughs> That's the one? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure Who's got the clicker? Thank you. Brilliant. Superb. It's like uh, I've got an extra prop here. It's a pair of glasses. Uh, I'm giving in to old age at last. I was making a joke about people who are over 50 and then I realised, oh, I'm over 50. Damn. Uh, thank you very, very, very much for inviting me to uh, talk to you about this. Um, intangible heritage. I've been, I, I should have a bit of um, uh, audience participation. Have you enjoyed the conference so far? Yes. It's going to go downhill from here. Uh, I, I'm going to try and do something also quite exciting for myself is I hold in my hand a piece of paper which I normally don't ever read from but I have to say that um, this, this fabulous uh, female called Hannah um, we wrote this paper together and she has managed to craft it into such beautiful poetic words that I feel I have to actually do it justice and read it out but I will deviate because I can't help it. I, I wrote this paper in, in airports in Prague, in Dubai and beautiful Edinburgh and it just, it, it's from what I've been hearing from you just now, it's like the, the personality and the passion and the places that you're talking about this is what Hidden Heritage is all about. Each one of these talks I've heard so far is so different, but there's a common thread going through it. As I say, I'm about to try and ruin it with in, this intangible histories. <clears throat> the lecture paper, actually, I'm going to give just now, discusses the realities of personal heritage that lies within ourselves. We create landscapes of memory and imagination too often leaving these stories and places as we grow older, recording them only in our own reminiscences. Perhaps the time has come to rediscover the environment around us with fresh eyes, listening to other people, share your personal histories with others, explore and record these shared visions of the past that we have. This is so unlike me. I'm such a functionalist archaeologist that, in fact, one of my colleagues um, told me I was the dullest man alive because, um, to me, an archaeological site is uh, consisting of a silty, sandy clay, uh, 30 centimetres depth, tapering to uh, 15 millimetres. While he sort of goes, oh, interpersonal violence, whoa, stuff like that. Now, there's a bit of charcoal. But personal heritage itself has to remain slightly mysterious. Sadly, I think everybody knows everything about me thanks to Facebook. Including, did you know I've got a belly button hernia? Well, you didn't, all right. You do now. Perhaps it is a little bit self-referencing, but it doesn't have to remain hidden. There's two main areas of hidden heritage which can be explored. The personal history and the relationship of the person with the site this knowledge of place that you have 
people will be telling me about Dorchester. I find it fascinating, never having been to Dorchester myself. I was, oh, it's, it's, I'm going to explore it a bit tonight, well, especially the pubs. Anyone who's spent any time in the, uh, the company of others begins slowly to uncover or excavate the personal past of that individual or individuals, whereby each moment or stage in a person's life is marked by their own unrecorded instance of life-changing, memorable histories. Each one of you has a personal history, which is fascinating. I just, it's a shame I don't have time to actually sit down with every one of you and find out everything about you. Perhaps tonight. That's not an offer, by the way. <laughs> so, this aspect of hidden history is often overlooked and even ignored by people like myself when listening to others. Yet, to the best of my knowledge, it's this area which offers the richest dialogue of hidden heritage. After spending quite a lot of time, my mother uh, unfortunately had dementia, and when she died, I then volunteered at a dementia day centre. And it was, it was fascinating to me as well, because it was like excavating the eroded past of people. All that was left was their foundations. I exposed, though, countless past recollections which came to me. It forced me to re-examine my own relationship with the past. As a result of this panoply of lived experiences, it became increasingly clear <coughs> that my self, uh, introspective self-examination could provide a very innovative and alternative route into the interpretive process. I'm getting a bit theoretical now. I'm way out of my depth. But it was fascinating for me. Um, this is uh, part of the group. I was, I was so young back then. This is part of the group. I am the one in the middle, by the way, just in case. This is part of the group uh, that I would take to an excavation that I would work on. One of them even had a memory of working there uh, as a gardener, which would have been remarkable because that would have put her at around about 243. <laughs> but she had her memories of, she had a, a sort of a, a twisted string. I didn't say these memories would be real, but they were her memories. Um, the woman here, she told me all these, we opened up a book and it was uh, the Blitz in Liverpool. And it was just a page, a picture of the Blitz in Liverpool. That was it. But we sat there for the afternoon and she told me about it to the point where I could smell it. I could hear it. I could feel the brick dust in my teeth. The way she told me about it still raises goosebumps on me. She was giving me a hidden history which took a picture, a simple black and white picture, and turned it into a reality for me. It was truly fascinating. This story could have been told in an Anglo-Saxon hall. This was a narrative that was heavy with symbolism and meaning to her and then to me. In addition to the descriptive wealth that could not compare with a sparse commentary that we often get from the archaeological site. Here we have the ability to view the past in a small microcosm <coughs> of personal memory, often embellished, like the 240-year-old woman, but that turns what to me was, in my park, a clay pit into a bottomless lake at which lay many shipwrecks, 
it also turned the railway embankment behind my house into a mighty rampart over which at any moment hairy tribesmen would appear. They never did. Often, however, these only have meaning to the individual, but they can create a woven memory that creates a tapestry as sumptuous as any medieval wall hanging. Now, like you would know, any medieval wall hanging doesn't perhaps actually represent the facts. It represents a truth. And that's something that we've also been talking about throughout today, how there is no such thing as a fact other than the ship is a ship, the tank is a tank. But the stories and the facts and the whys and the hows and the whos merge and move through history. They're like swirls of colour in a pot of paint. Sharing these experiences can provide, and I feel I have to do this, transgenerational, thank you, transgenerational associations, sparking discussion, communication and connection. This is a site I did at uh, a place called the Nungate in Haddington. Do not expect the community to come to your site. Take the site to the community, is what I say. So here I had uh, a 19th century wash house demolished in 1962, right next to a medieval bridge, which on that side live the poor people, and on this side live the rich people. Never the twain will meet Never has archaeology or anybody or history has anything to do with any of these people until you dig a bloody great hole next to the bridge that they all walk past and they all do that classic thing which you cannot help but do. What are you doing? <laughs> Would you like to know? No. <laughs> Come down here and say that. Have a trowel and let's have a dig. Unbelievably, on this dig, we found a brick wall and a concrete floor. <gasps> we were there for three weeks. Um, every school child from miles around came to it. And at the end, I think I counted it up at around about 400 people dug my site. And we found a concrete floor and a brick wall. But that, in a way, didn't matter. In one instance, in fact, my, I, I will digress briefly. It was one of my favourite moments was when uh, a drunk from Nungate, the poor side, spoke to a drunk from this side, the posh one. Didn't understand a word that they said, but they were, they were communicating with each other for hours. Remarkable. I also got in trouble from health and safety when... Um, I thought it was fine. I had some heroin addicts came down who wanted to get involved. And I had some kids there as well. The kids were digging away and they got the heroin addicts to enter their buckets for them. But it was brilliant because the heroin addicts actually felt that they were useful. And the kids didn't know that they weren't supposed to talk to these sort of people. And so um, why did they always have to be Tabitha? <laughs> Tabitha and Audrey were having um, shugs empty their barrows for them because they had something in common. They had this site in common, this brick wall and concrete floor. I digress. In one instance, the discovery of a thropney bit and pennies brought smiles associated with fond 
sentimental memories from the volunteers and visitors. School children laughed at stories of pocket money counted out in pennies. My pocket money, by the way, was six pence a week. I knew I was rich. You could then start telling tales of sweets and things bought and pennies lost. There was a connection between the generations. When taken together and listened to these inconsequential moments in time, in history, transformed into a fascinating social documentary. In this instance, the insignificant experience became as valued as the most remarkable treasure, Tutankhamun mask. Moving forward, we as archaeologists must remember this vital part of who and what we are and how this shapes the individual and the society that that individual lives in. Therefore, an archaeological site is not a sterile passcape with two-dimensional sort of Egyptian figures walking through it. They are rounded places where people and personalities lived. I was actually sort of thinking about this on the way down, and uh, this is a, a new story which has been bubbling away for the past few years. Undoubtedly, we see the past through the richness of our own present. But what's overlooked is the fact that our interpretations and what we see and examine are 99% missing. The particular reasoning and the story attached to each artefact that we find is lost forever. But their physical presence and the associated hidden heritage value cannot be ignored. These are, fascinatingly, bronze arrowheads uh, from a culture that uh, was around in northern Germany around about 1200 BC. Add them to this and this is from the, the Tollens Valley and the river uh, battlefield that's been discovered. It starts off just by a few pieces and then they went, Uek, we seem to have a whole battlefield. Interestingly for me, we're looking at the two sides of it. It's can anyone name another Bronze Age battle that they know the name of? Greek one. Ah, you got it, yes. There's a, there is a kind of Greek one, um, or Anatolian. Uh, of course, we all know the, the, the Trojan War. We're looking at a Bronze Age battle site. We know the names of the people who were there. We know the names of the tribes. We understand why they were fighting. Always for the love of a beautiful woman. <laughs> or a horse, one of you. I get confused. I do get confused. But we know all about that because we have been told this story. We all know that story. How on earth is it that all of us here know this story that was told three and a half thousand years ago in another part of the world? Or in fact, almost another part of the world. But this story is gone, but it's now stuck. We, we cannot stand as humans. This battle has actually now got a name, unbelievably. It is called, are you ready? It's called the Slaughter at the Bridge. People are likening it. That's another word I have difficulty with. You'll discover another word I have horrible difficulty with later. They're likening it, likening it, likening, yeah, that word, to um, some Tolkien-esque battle of the five armies. 
it's now starting to gather and gain its own story. Is it real or not? Does it matter? It's a story. As long as you can recognize the difference between reality and truths and facts, does it matter that this is now gaining all these stories? I love it. Or as Billy Conley would say, I love it. Or as Neil Oliver would say, I love it. Anyway. <laughs> Have you not noticed how he can actually he can actually walk backwards and talk at the same time? He's a friend, I can say that, it's alright. So when I go to a site like this, it's a site called Whitbury Point in East Lothian. I intend to excavate it um, with some veterans. But it was fascinating for me to hear from a guy who actually was on uh, the pillbox on top of here. But it also turns out that's a Bronze Age burial mound as well. Uh, St. Baldur's Cradle. is up there as well, which elsewhere early Christianity came to East Lothian. There are all these merging sort of histories and stories about this place. But my favourite story, which has unfortunately now sort of engraved into my head, and I'm going to pass it on to you to just try and get rid of some of the pain, is one of the women from the dementia uh, ward told me what happened at, um, it's, just, it's just off there fortunately, a nice little uh, pillbox. It was a pillbox built uh, to defend the beaches against uh, German invasion, and it was there that she first met um, her first <clears throat> love against the concrete wall, which I can't now go past without seeing her in that um, position. But it has changed my <laughs> it has changed my images of the past. It's a, it's real. It's no longer a tight 22 pillbox. It's got a story attached to it. It's got a person attached to it. It's, it's, then my entire way that I see that place has changed. <coughs> Just as the same as this place here. So, um, I've been working at, um, on hill forts up in Scotland. Rampart, Scotland is the site. Um, we've been working at this White Castle fort. But I know this intimately. I know it so well. I know what it's like in the winter. I know what it's like in the autumn. I can feel the wind upon my face. I can smell the heather and the, and the sheep droppings. I can pass on to you so much more than you see here. Uh, uh, see that groove? That's where you park your car. That's where you go across the fence. You then walk up there. Dum, 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 dum. You get to the top, you stop. At this point, usually the man turns to the woman and goes, huh. Right. Huh. You then turn around again <laughs> and wander back to the car. Get in the car and you're off. You're gone. But if they were with me, sometimes, unfortunately, people do get stuck with me, is I will tell them stories and give them a whole new feeling of what it is to be there, to experience it. I make them duck into a um, hut platform, into a hut that's not there anymore. I make them bend to go in. I make them actually have people warming their hands in the cold air. I'm giving them stories. And here's my embarrassment. Yes, that is me. 
at the age of 10 uh, down at Hadrian's Wall. The Romans had just evacuated. <laughs> it's a fine pair of shorts. Um, that was me at the age of 10. Now, the story that I had <coughs> of my own informed memories, I imagined fur-clad barbarians stalking the empty fog-covered moorlands, ready to attack the order and peace and the might of the Roman Empire. I walked the sentry, uh, I walked the wall as the Roman sentry would have done, ready to warn my cohort of an impending attack with the aid of my basic Latin. Because yes, we still talked Latin back then. I would march up and down. I now know it's horribly wrong, going sinister, 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 Dexter, sinister. Which means left, 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 right, left. I developed, however, a more nuanced approach as I grew older. Maybe it was a more appropriate response to the monuments. Nonetheless, the more informed present through the experiences of a Mithraic temple or a Housestead's Roman fort are as important to the truth as the dreams of a 10-year-old boy. I can still take people, in fact I'm going down next week, uh, to where I once marched this lovely, lonely stretch of the wall or ducked into a dark, incense-filled temple. These childhood experiences now add to the present more informed, or should I say more educated, knowledge that I have. It doesn't take away from the site, though, nor change its interpretation, but only makes it more real to the individual. So, to put it bluntly, just because I believe Santa Claus doesn't exist doesn't mean I can't enjoy Christmas. I sometimes think I see the past like that now. The mumblings of people who are like this. I can, I can just make out what they're seeing. Saying it, but it's, it, it's, it's kind of mumbled and hidden from me. The closer I get to the present, I can actually talk to people who know stuff. I was always blown away by the fact that uh, my granny was born in the 19th century. Her granny, blimey, you know, we're going, that's unimaginable. You know, these things where I'm actually connected into the 19th century. I can talk that far back and learn from people. The big question, however, that remains is uh, whether this approach and methodology actually delivers anything meaningful from the meaningless. Considering knowledge that lies out with living memory and accepting that even memory can create an alternative reality, then the short answer, sadly, is no. Is this a phenomenally phenomenological waste of time and effort? Yes, he did it. Thank you very much. Once again, and seemingly contrary to the previous statement, the answer is also no for two simple reasons. First reason concerns that we, what we know as archaeologists, which should and must be tempered by the knowledge that we don't possess 99% of that. Put differently, we only create knowledge within the bounds of cold, hard fat. The pot is red, the pit contains charred seeds, the knife is iron, the, iron, the grave contains a skeleton which is no more than just a statement of the bleeding obvious. What we then do with these facts is seek truth, a reason, a story, a meaning behind the creation, the deposition, the function. Thus, we have to be aware of our own hidden heritages to allow a more open, humanistic, holistic interpretation of the past. I'm working at this site just now in the Emirates. It's a place called Jazirat al-Hamra. It's called the Ghost Town. 
There's many ghosts there. And people come there for the ghosts. Brilliant, I say, come for the ghosts. But stay and understand why the town is there, how it developed about the pearling industry of the 18th century. The idea is eventually to reconstruct areas of this, but it's so important that they don't have just blank, empty buildings with nothing in them but objects and artefacts that don't have a story. That's why it's important to meet people like that and talk to them before they disappear. I love wandering at Hales Castle. Uh, this is just down from where I am. So imagine exploring a stone circle or a castle or a woodland or a World War II bunker. <gasps> Through the recent stories and the recent imaginations and narratives that we or others can create, life becomes a rich place. A monument is allowed to have more than one narrative. Gasp, shock, horror. It can actually have a thousand voices, each telling you a completely different story. So next time, stop, look, and listen. Now you'll be glad to know we're at the end. I've got a word for this. I, I learned this word recently. And if you can take anything away from this, it is the word qualia. If you don't know what the word means, um, I can very easily explain it to you. If I say to you the redness of an apple, at this precise moment something has flashed into each and every one of your heads. Can you, you can almost taste the apple, you can smell the apple, you can feel it. The taste of wine, the kiss of a loved one, the feel of breeze upon your face, all these things are things that happened to people in the past. Why do we just turn them into these two-dimensional clean characters? Qualia is actually experiencing the place. This is the site of Balbithan Wood up in Aberdeenshire. And there I was able to talk with foresters who experience it in one way. With archaeologists, in fact, there are three hidden cairns in that. There's not a prize for finding them. There are dog walkers that go through it. Sometimes the place is sunny, sometimes it is rainy, sometimes it's dark. There are Neolithic cairns in there, Bronze Age cairns, hut circles, medieval um, farmsteads. There's all the different panoply of archaeological sites. But there's also the people, the dog walkers and the foresters and the archaeologists and the golfers that are wandering around it. Uh, and also some children who've got the, the fear of Jesus put into them when, unfortunately, I appeared like something out of Leon the Assassin. Um, and asked them, <laughs> did they have any secret places that they could show me in the forest? <laughs> in retrospect, that was a poor choice. <laughs> <laughs> However, I put this one on here because I'm, I'm standing there, I'm experiencing the place. It's not just a dead place anymore. I listen to the others. That again sounds a bit weird as well. They talk to me, you know. I listen to other people and how they experience it, how they experience a, a heritage site. It's really important not to impose our own views of a place upon the others, upon the community. It's for all of us to have our own views and experiences and communicate it with everyone else. So on that very bizarre and thoughtful uh, note, I will thank you very much. Uh, and hopefully there's no questions. Thank <laughs> you.
This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.